الجزيرة بودكاست It's a war that's involved tanks and traditional military weaponry. But increasingly in the Russia-Ukraine war, a more modern form of technology has played a major role in the conflict. Drones. The drones are small, fly low, and are being used across Ukraine on civilian infrastructure. A kamikaze drone seen here after an attack on the other side of the country in Kharkiv. Cheap, self-detonating and unmanned, they are a new weapon in Russia's war on Ukraine. So how exactly have drones shaped how Russia and Ukraine fight the war? And are we moving towards a future where autonomous so-called killer robots take to the battlefields to kill entirely on their own? I'm Hala Mohiuddin, and this is The Take. Drones have been used in several conflicts before this, but this is the first industrial-sized conflict in decades. That's Al Jazeera's defence editor, Alex Gatopoulos, who saw how drones are being used in Ukraine during a trip in September. Alex, let's start by talking about how drones have been used during the Russia-Ukraine war. They've been used for surveillance, correcting artillery fire, and to carry and drop weapons on the enemy. How has that changed the tactical nature of this war? You effectively have CCTV cameras up in the sky that are able to monitor what's moving in a wide area in high definition. You can fly them at night, you can fly them during the day, and usually in most kinds of weather. So they're pretty useful just for that. And they're feeding pictures back to a command post in real time, for the most part. It's been smaller drones in particular, ones that can fit into the palm of your hand, that have been a unique feature of the war. Sort of thing you can buy in a shop or Amazon for a few hundred dollars. They don't have much of a range, but they do allow troops to be able to peer what's down that road, what's waiting around the corner, what's over that hill. So your enemy, he's got CCTV cameras in the sky monitoring your every move. So mass movements of troops and vehicles are going to get spotted very, very early on. For Ukraine, drones have been a successful, low-cost way to stay in the fight and exact blows on an enemy with a much bigger army. There's something the country has rallied around, with the Turkish Bayraktar TB2 drone becoming something of a cultural icon in Ukraine. So much so that there's even a pop song about it, complete with a music video starring dancing Ukrainian soldiers. It's something along the lines of Barakta, Barakta, you're brilliant sort of thing. And the way drones have permeated everyday Ukrainian culture doesn't stop there. Around the country, schools, workshops and what Alex calls citizen labs have popped up, where anyone can learn how to operate drones and join the fight. This allows regular civilians to get involved. It has united the country in a way that I don't think it was united before. And you have 
dozens and dozens of little factories where people are making bombs of a certain size, trying to make them as lethal as possible, but still able to be carried by these tiny little drones and make them effective tactical tools. People are getting together with ideas. Some work, some don't. But the Russian side aren't doing nearly enough of this, in part because they're a regular military. They're being supplied by their own military, their own Ministry of Defense. And the Russians haven't really caught up with this sort of technology. And the Ukrainians are pushing it forward. Mm. And they really are. Alex saw one of Ukraine's drone workshops, where small drones called Mavics were being jerry-rigged with weapons. There was one guy, he didn't want to go into too many details, but he did show us the underside of his own Mavic that he had tweaked and added stuff to, which this plastic clamp, like a plastic grab handle that was remote controlled. And they had 3D printed parts for a grenade to keep it light. So it was printed in plastic, but it had an explosive charge inside that could be flown over an enemy foxhole, a small position, maybe an open-top vehicle, and drop onto that vehicle or in that position and kill the people concerned. Now, you're doing that two or three or four times just before an assault. It's going to start to, to make a difference to how the Russians will fight back. And it also means the Russians can't get any sleep. They're constantly going to be worried about that sound in the air. When they hear something, they know that they're being targeted and it's close by. So it's a tremendous psychological effect as well. And just so I'm clear here, essentially they're adding a contraption onto the drone to use it in this different way. Correct. That's right. So you'll buy something, you'll buy a regular drone, but you'll tweak it. You'll tweak it because it's always designed to carry cameras or a certain small load up to a point. But that's usually enough to carry a hand grenade. So I've seen workshops where they're experimenting with ball bearings or different types of casing so that it'll be light enough to be able to carry as much of the bomb itself. So the bigger the charge, the deadlier it's going to be, pretty much. Craig, it's the sort of DIY workshop that... <laughs> exactly. Is there something about drones that makes it easier for regular people to join the fight? Yes, the commercial drones are easy to learn because they're designed to be used by civilians. If that drone is shot down, and some of them are, the pilot survives. You can plug in another drone and fly it off in a matter of minutes. So you keep that knowledge. Whereas if you're the pilot of a normal manned jet aircraft, you may be captured, you may be killed, whereas the drone pilot is nice and safe back at headquarters. And also the very fact that a TB2 has its own song in Ukraine just shows you how effective it's been in spotting enemy columns and helping destroy them. Because sometimes they don't fly by themselves, they're flying in squadrons. These kind of hunter-killer groups where you can spot columns of vehicles coming to you and destroy them one by one by one until they're just smoking wrecks. And Alex says the visuals of these smoking wrecks have played a big role in their popularity in the war on both sides. You're filming all these successes in full HD, colour picture, colour video, and you're showing them on social media. And that boosts your own side 
whichever side you happen to be, you're seeing the successes of the enemy being destroyed again and again and again. So it has that great propaganda effect that I think has been invaluable in the Ukraine war. One of the biggest successes that Ukraine credited to drones was back in April, when officials said they managed to sink the Moskva, a 12,000-tonne Russian ship, after diverting its attention with a drone. The Moskva missile cruise ship has now sunk. The Ukrainians said they fired two Neptune missiles towards this after distracting those on board with a drone. Now there's an arms race on both sides, trying to get as many of them as they can or manufacture them locally. And Alex says Ukraine has the edge in terms of being able to receive foreign drones and parts. Let's face it, most of the West or every single NATO country is aiding and arming Ukraine. And that's not just with ammunition or existing weapons. They'll also get technical know-how because everybody's thinking about this and they're sending through ideas. And of course, you've got the Ukrainian companies themselves that were embryonic in the beginning at the time of the invasion, but obviously have had manpower and money ploughed into them and they've expanded, you know, dramatically. Russia, on the other hand, is quite isolated. Don't they run the risk of running out of drones or materials to make them? Yes, they do. And because they're complex things, they obviously take some time. It's not something you can just churn out. Ukraine has committed itself fully to a wartime economy. Now, that has a damaging effect, but in terms of producing things needed by the military, it's extremely useful. But Russia is definitely running out. And Russia has few friends. It has North Korea, which is supplying it with ammunition. And it has Iran. So Russia has no option but to reach out to Iran, which, due to its own sanctions against it, has become very adept at producing decent quality, low-cost drones. And Iran's helping. Can you speak to the structure of the Russian military? Would you say it's the case that there's a much more rigid chain of command when it comes to drone usage that makes it harder for them to be nimble? That's right across the board, not just in drones. What we've seen here is a crumbling of this Russian military that 99% of analysts around the world thought was more professional, better trained, better equipped, better supplied, all of it. And then to see them crumble, suddenly they're running out of fuel, they're running out of ammunition, they're running out of food, and having to loot local supermarkets and all the rest of it. That is a real indication of, frankly, just how shabbily they've been trained and how poor their command structure is. And drones are a part of it. After the break, we look at the next frontier in the drone wars, autonomous technology. How far are we from drones killing on their own? On this week's episode of Essential Middle East Podcast, find out what the most right-wing government in Israel's history is doing in the Holy Land these days. As far as we know, 
Drones used during the Russia-Ukraine war have all had humans controlling them from somewhere. But experts believe we're not far away from seeing fully autonomous drones, also known as killer robots, sent to battlefields entirely on their own. We spoke to one of them. An expert, that is. Not a killer robot. My name's Toby Walsh. I'm a professor of artificial intelligence at UNSW Sydney in Australia. And I've spent pretty much all of my life trying to build more intelligent machines. Toby's written a book called Machines Behaving Badly, and he's been at the forefront of campaigns to ban killer robots. But technological advances have reached a point where Toby knows an outright ban is no longer possible. He says the same technology that's used for autonomous weapons is also in other products, such as self-driving cars. These are technologies that you can prohibit. They're the same technologies that go into your autonomous drones to identify and track combatants on the ground and kill them. It's the same algorithms. We're not going to be able to stop the development of the technology. But I do think we can regulate where the technology is used and how it is used. In the most basic sense, I think we will be crossing an ethical red line to hand over killing, hand over the decision as to who lives and who dies to an unempathetic machine. There are also, I think, significant legal concerns about whether these weapons would be consistent with international humanitarian law. There are strict rules about how we fight war. To understand what we're talking about, Toby says it's important to realise that what's classified as a robot isn't just what you might have seen in the movies. When people hear the phrase killer robots, I think most images that people see are those Hollywood have given us. A robot with a glint in its eye that has evil intent. Lethal autonomous weapons, as they're more prosaically called, range from autonomous drones or semi-autonomous drones that are increasingly turning up in the skies of, of Ukraine. You find them in almost every theatre of war, not just in the air, on the sea. Uh, the United States Navy has its first fully autonomous ship that's made a trans-Pacific journey without any humans on board. Sea Hunter has become the first craft to ever sail from San Diego, California to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii and back without needing any onboard crew. Under the sea, you see autonomous submarines, and on land, you see autonomous tanks. So there's a variety of weapons. In fact, I mean, you can pretty much imagine almost every weapon system being given a bit more autonomy in due course. It's an attractive option to add to make more sophisticated, to make more independent pretty much any weapon system that we already have. But it's a jump to fully autonomous weapons that Toby says would pose major moral questions. It is a big ethical step, and certainly discussions at the United Nations and elsewhere have centred around this idea of meaningful human control. One of the biggest questions, as soon as you move humans from the loop, is one of accountability. Only humans can be punished. A robot can't be held accountable for its decisions. It's not conscious, it's not aware of its decisions, and what could you do if it makes a bad decision. You could you turn the robot off. Well, the robot doesn't care. You turn it back on. It's just the same as it was. So there is this so-called accountability gap when we remove humans completely from the decision-making. Toby is confident regulation of autonomous killer robots will come eventually 
but he's equally sure it will come too late. I think what makes me despondent is that if we look at the history of disarmament, we've only regulated almost all technologies post hoc, after the technology was used in battle. It was only after the horrors of the First World War that we got around to regulate chemical weapons. It was only after we saw nuclear weapons being used in the Second War in anger that we got around to regulate nuclear weapons. And so that's the thing that gives me despair here is that we're going to have to see these weapons being used to commit atrocities before we get round to have the courage and conviction to regulate this space. And with the technology pretty much already there, Toby says the only reasons we haven't seen killer robots in action is restraint by some and lack of access for others. Even though there isn't international regulation that is limiting this space, countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, have imposed restrictions on the use of such weaponry. And so the US military has behaved responsibly. But the problem and the challenge we face as a globe is that there are many irresponsible actors out there. Many believe Russia is one of those irresponsible actors. And the fact experts don't believe Russia has used fully autonomous robots yet suggests they don't have them. I think it indicates what we've discovered about Russian military capability in general, which is that it's not as sophisticated as perhaps Russia has been posturing. Certainly there is a Russian AI military capability, but from what we can tell, it is still very rudimentary. So that's, you know, being good news in some sense, that it's meant that Russia hasn't had plentiful access to this technology. Certainly there's been significant posturing. They've talked about what I can only describe, I think, as the most terrifying concept, even if it doesn't possibly exist, is Russia's Poseidon autonomous underwater submarine which is supposed to be a nuclear-powered submarine, so it can travel very high speed, very long distances, which is nuclear-tipped. It's supposed to be able to carry a dirty cobalt bomb, so it will be able to drive underwater autonomously up the Hudson off Manhattan and blow itself up and take out half of Manhattan. That's a hypothetical. But according to Russian state media, Tests of a mock-up of the Poseidon were conducted just this week. But it's not just Russia that Toby's concerned about. It's not clear how responsible Turkey is going to be. It's even less clear how responsible Iran is going to be. And then there are you know, plenty of other irresponsible actors waiting in the wings. It's not just rogue states that may pick up this technology. This is simple enough and cheap enough that you can imagine terrorist organisations using it. These would be, in fact perfect weapons of terror. Because one of the challenges and one of the reasons why the US military has not allowed full autonomy is that there will be mistakes made. The weapons might not be 99.999% accurate. And if you're the US military, you worry about that. You worry about collateral damage. If you're a rogue state, and most definitely if you're a terrorist organization, you have no qualms at all. If your weapon is 50% accurate and half the people it kill are the wrong people, well, that's an even more terrifying weapon. That's a concern for the future. But in this moment, many observers believe the Russia-Ukraine war is a turning point for drones, including Alex Kotopoulos. He's expecting to see even more of them. 
I think they will be incorporated in a far deeper level, the tactical and maybe even the strategic level. And the Russians will eventually catch up to this. They will start producing their own armed drones. When you start flying them, not just singly, but in groups, you can literally fly them to a target area where they can loiter and scan in real time. And it's not just a pilot making this decision because you can beam this stuff onto a screen and imagery analysts and commanders, everybody can look at the same picture, helping to make tactical and strategic decisions and deciding what to attack and what to spot in real time. And I think a lot of the armies around the world are drawing the same conclusions as well. While they may have already started to embed drones into some of their military units, you're going to see them at every single level of the military structure coming up. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliai, Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, and me, Halamahia Dean. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Malek and Adam Abugad are the Takes engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>